This is the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Bablingo, the world's best software for learning and retaining the biblical languages. This is episode one. I'm Josh Mann, a New Testament scholar who serves as product manager at Bablingo. In this episode, I talk with my friend and Bablingo founder and CEO, Kevin Grosso, about how we would answer the question, why study the biblical languages? Kevin has an MA in linguistics and is currently a PhD student studying theoretical linguistics at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Most episodes will be hosted either by Kevin or me and include discussions and interviews relevant to biblical exegesis. We have some excellent episodes in the hopper, so subscribe and don't miss a single one. Just a short note about my, Kevin's, audio quality in this episode. I did not have my nice mic with me when we recorded it, so the audio quality isn't the best. However, in all future episodes, my audio will sound like this. Thanks for bearing with us on this first episode. Well, it's a pleasure to have Kevin Grosso here and uh, talking about why study the original languages? Um, it's something we've both done. We've both spent a lot of our adult lives studying the original languages. So why should we do it? I mean, what would you say is kind of at the top of your list? Why should somebody make that sacrifice? Yeah, so for me, studying the original languages is all about getting to the meaning of the text more clearly. So you know, there are ways in which a translation could obscure the meaning. I mean, obviously, there are the reason why people translate the text is to get the meaning out, to disseminate it to people that don't know the original languages, right? Uh, but at the same time, whenever you translate a text, you are interpreting it necessarily. So, you know, I think the for me, the biggest motivation to learn the original languages is just to have access, more immediate access to the original meaning of the text. Um, you know, there there are a lot of times with translations, translations will will choose a certain way to to translate the text, um, and that reflects a certain interpretation. And there might be other ways to understand the text in the original language um, that is screened out by, by the translation that, you know, whoever has chosen. And, and those other ways might be legitimate, you know, readings of the text. Um, of course, like, we want to say that there is one correct interpretation, um, but as, a, as an interpreter, you don't have all of the options in front of you if you're just reading it. Um, through a translation. Yeah. Okay, for so sure. you know, I think I think for both of us it's really important we want to know the original languages to know the meaning of the text. Um I think also in its context and its historical context. So words change over time, so there is this you know, that's part of the equation. Um and as as a person of faith, as a Christian particularly, you know, there's also this theological motivation. So, you know, if, if you're interested in the academic study of the Bible, then yes, you need to know the original languages to understand the texts that you're studying. 
But if you're a Christian, there's also a lot of incentive there to know, and you believe the Bible's God's written revelation. You want to know that as best as you can. Um, Kevin, you were mentioning how other people in other religions approach their sacred texts and, and how that con- kind of contrasts. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, so I'm living in Israel right now, and Christians are easily the minority here. Um, <laughs> there are very few Christians. Um, and obviously, the, the two biggest groups here are Muslims and Jews. And it's interesting to watch them um, and just see how seriously they take their their text and the language that their text is is written in. So, you know, Muslims, for example, um, you know, they they believe that Arabic itself is sacred, and so they they don't want to translate. The, the text into another language. And we as Christians, we don't believe that, right? We don't believe that there is something sacred about Greek or about Hebrew. And, and we want to translate it uh, because we want to get the meaning out to as many people as possible. But at the same time, I think there's something that we can learn from Muslims and Jews who both really want to, to learn their text in the original language. And, you know, there are Muslims that that memorize the Quran in Arabic and Jews do the same thing in Hebrew. And it, it really does put them at an advantage um, for understanding their own text in its context, in, you know, in its original meaning. That, you know, for us as Christians, you know, we, we believe we have the truth. So, um, you know, we, we think that our, our text is, is, uh, is right. Um, so how much more should we, you know, do whatever we can to, to understand it as well as we can? And I think, you know, as somebody who, who now knows the original languages, and, you know, I'm still trying to grow in my knowledge of, of the languages every day, um, but somebody who studied them, has degrees in, in, in them, I would advocate for somebody who hasn't yet that you, you will ask new questions of any passage that you never, they never occur to you if you're reading it in your native language. And they're, they are crucial questions for understanding a passage. Now, I, but I completely agree with what you said, Kevin, at, at the beginning. You can arrive at a solid understanding of Scripture through your native language translation. So I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to give the indication that Unless you know the original languages, you're just going to flounder and just not understand anything. We're not saying that, but from experience, without a doubt, like I would advocate, um, the kinds of questions you begin asking of the text and your understanding of it improves. And, um, you know, then from a, uh, from a Christian perspective, I'd say the church needs people, more people, who know these original languages. To, to be helping those who, for whatever reason, can't or won't, um, you know, un- understand the range of interpretations and, and deal with some of the issues and things like this. So, you know, just from that experien- experiential standpoint, I'd say, yes, this is so helpful. But it's kind of hard to know until you, until you do it. Like, you'll see the benefits as you start to learn. For, for sure. 
And and I, I completely agree about just asking different questions of the text. You know, I mean, now, I, I mean, I, you know, personally, I, I don't really read the Bible in English anymore, but, but when I do, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little bit frustrated because I can't ask the same, I'm, I always end up thinking like, okay, but what does, what does it say in Hebrew or what does it say in Greek? You know, and I, and I have to think to myself, like, you know, I, I can't, there are some questions when I'm reading it in English or when I'm reading it in a translation that I, I can't answer until I get back to, to the original. Um, you know, ex- about exactly what, you know, the author might have been saying in this particular context. Um, and I think the, um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I also completely agree that, and, and I said this earlier, right, that, you know, not, not everyone even needs to learn you know, the original languages. Like, we don't want to say that um, that the Bible shouldn't be translated, right? You know, I mean, we, in fact, the whole point of learning the original languages, you know, a, a huge part of it is so that we can translate it, you know, so, so that we can get the message out. Like, what we want to do is get the, the meaning of the message out to as many people as possible. But at the same time, if, if we have access to um the original language resources you know why why would we not take advantage of that um i i i heard a quote one time this guy said uh reading the the bible um or re- reading a bible translation is like kissing your bride through a veil and yeah i've and heard are, that there are ways in which there there are senses in which that's not really true um, but there are senses in which it is, and you know, like if if you can, if we do have access, you know, to you know affordable language acquisition resources to learn the languages, like why would we not take advantage of of those resources and and learn the languages as well as we can, and to ultimately know God as well as we can, you know, and to worship Him Him more. Yeah. Um, in the show notes, we'll we'll put a link to the source of that quote. So on that note, though, you know, we live in an age of unprecedented access to affordable language acquisition tools and Bible software. And I remember thinking this, I started learning Greek was the first language I learned um, and back in 2003. It seems like I can't hardly believe how long it's been um, in, in an undergraduate program. and at the time, you know, actually the big three Bible software companies were around Logos, Accordance, and um, BibleWorks. And I remember having this debate like, oh man, which one should I buy? And it was so exciting. And now, like, those programs, well, BibleWorks has, has ceased to be, but, you know, they've gotten even better. And, but I remember thinking at the time, I just felt this responsibility that there are all of these amazing tools and resources and particularly for the Bible languages and Bible texts, like in terms, I've done work in digital humanities and compared to generally texts in the world, literary texts, let's say, the Bible has received so much attention from developers and we just, there's never been a time like now to learn the biblical languages and language acquisition particularly has also come a long way. 
Um, and, you know, we both are working on this project, Bablingo, which teaches the biblical languages, which, you know, obviously we're excited about. So learning a language is a sacrifice. It, it, it's, it's difficult in some ways to acquire a language, but it's never been easier. The bar has never been lower. I mean, would you agree with that? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, yeah, definitely. We have we have you know more resources today than than ever before. I think our our situation, especially in the West, is a little bit difficult in the sense that we aren't used to learning languages. Um, you know, for so much of the world, and and still today, you know, we still speak two, three, four languages, and it's just it's a very normal fact of life. And they understand then what it takes to learn a language. And for us, and I, I know I felt this way for a long time about, you know, becoming fluent in a language. It just felt like an insurmountable task that other people did. But I just thought like, oh, I would, I would never, I'll just never get there. Um, but but so, so, so I think we have more resources than ever before, um, but, but we need to to use those resources um, in in better ways than than many of us are currently, um, and and really view language learning as as a skill. You know, just something that you need to practice. You know, when when I talk to people about learning languages, I tell them, you know, it, it's learning an instrument, it's playing a sport. You know, it's it's not something that you you just learn as a fact. You, it's a skill that you practice. Um, so I, I do think we have more resources than ever before. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we obviously do. But we need to utilize those resources um, and we need to make, to use them in such a way where it sharpens our skills um, and we're, we're not using them as much as, as crutches, for example, yeah. which is what happens, unfortunately, a lot of times. Yeah, that's helpful. I really like that language as a skill idea. I think that helps kind of answer a, a question that people have, or maybe just a wrong way of thinking like, oh, I want to learn, a, like lots of people want to learn a language and they, you know, it'd be nice to snap our fingers and yay, I can speak, you know, Spanish, but it, it takes a little time. It takes practice. And that's one reason, I mean, we're not going to talk a lot about Bablingo in this episode, but uh, what Bablingo does is it takes a living language approach to acquiring a language where you're getting practice, you're seeing videos and hearing audio, and it's um, a more natural way of learning a language. And, you know, this pedagogical approach is, is really growing generally in language acquisition. And it, it makes language learning fun. And I think however you learn the original languages can be fun. I think this way is particularly fun. And that was so, sort of the last thing on my list was it, it's not excruciating. I mean, there are times when things are difficult, but like this is fun, and you will enjoy it. And um, I've I've seen lots of I've had students of different backgrounds and different kinds of skills, even those who would say their language isn't their thing, and to watch them learn a language and begin to use it, and you know, get that first sentence in in an ancient language that they get, like they knew the words, they knew the grammar. It's exciting, and like there, you never regret it. You don't think, "Oh man, this was a waste of time." So you know, if you're out there listening to us, and 
maybe you're struggling to learn the languages or this is something you you're thinking you might like to do i would you you don't really have anything to lose and i mean i waste more time every day probably than it would take to spend you know 15 minutes a day in a language so like it's it's yeah. very doable yeah for sure and and I, and i think that is an important point um and just something again that i had mentioned earlier is that i think for a lot of people they they feel like it isn't really doable and when they start it's boring you know um because they start with the alphabet and they you know they're just downing out the words and it can be very frustrating but but it's true once you get to that first text and you you know read it in the original and you understand it you know that's where you know the text begins to come alive in a new way and so yeah i mean i i, I would just encourage anyone as well you know, just to stick with it. Um, there really, there really is great benefit to learning the original languages of the Bible, and and really, you know, just getting as close as possible to, to the original meaning. Um, you know, it's something that you you probably won't regret in uh, you know ten thousand years from now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, you know, just thinking a little bit bigger picture, you know, from an eternal perspective, like, you know, th- these are the kinds of things that, um, you know, if we can get a little bit closer to the meaning and a little bit closer to understanding who God is and, and loving him more, like, man, that's, that's totally worth it. So one of the things that we've sort of, we've mentioned here, we've mentioned a few, like, more nitty-gritty specific practical advantages to learning the languages but not a lot but what we're going to do is we're going to look at an example in in the Hebrew Bible and one in the Greek New Testament um to kind of illustrate just two of i mean thousands and thousands of examples you could come up with for uh how the original how a knowledge of the original language help, helps you understand a text or avoid maybe a misunderstanding and I mean, there are things like alliteration, repetition, word plays, they're just semantics, like issues of what words mean. And there these are and even those five categories are the tip of the iceberg. Um but we've got a couple of categories here that we'll, we'll discuss. So the first one is from Psalm 17:15, a phrase that's often translated in righteousness. Uh but possibly obscures the meaning if you're reading this in an English translation, uh, or po- possibly your, if your native language is something other than English, then your translation may also, um, you know, translate this in a quite wooden way, a quite one-to-one way that, that obscures the meaning. So, Kevin, would you kind of introduce us to what is this passage, and, and then talk a little bit about this phrase? Yeah, so... I think it would be helpful to um, maybe I'll just read it this this clause in in Hebrew, and then just read a, a translation that I have in front of me. Um, in Hebrew, it says "Ani betzedek fanecha," and the translation is "As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness." So it's this "in righteousness" phrase. If you if you actually look up in the commentaries, they do all kinds of things with it um, because. If you just think about what it means in English, right? I shall behold your face 
in righteousness, it's very hard to understand, right? If if I said this, you know, to my wife, I, if I said, oh, I see your faith in righteousness, um, she would probably look at me funny and say, what are you saying to me? Yeah. Um, so, and I think that is kind of the first clue to you as, you know, someone reading the text in a translation to say like, huh, I wonder, I wonder what this says in Hebrew. And, and the translation itself, you know, it's very, um, I think you, you had used the word wooden and, or one-to-one. And, and I think that's, that's what it is, right? It's, Ani is I, Betzedek is literally in, Be is the preposition in, and Sedek is righteousness, um, or, you know, there are other translations for it. Um, and then Echeze, I will see, you know, Fanecha is um, your faith. And, and so, you know, it's, it's understandable how we get this translation. But when you know the original language, when you know Hebrew, you, you'll quickly find out that in order to form adverbs in, in Hebrew, you often just use this preposition be, and then you use uh, a noun. And a lot of times these nouns are derived from adjectives. Um, you know, righteousness, for example, is an English noun derived from an adjective, um, derived from the adjective righteous. And, and so it, it, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, maybe this this is just an adverb, right? And then, and then the next question is like, well, well, how do we form adverbs in English, right? In English, what we do is we take the ly suffix, right, um, and then we stick it onto an adjective. So, so, so in that case, so let me let me give uh, an option that we're not going to end up going with. So, so then if we made that into an adjective in English, we might translate it. Uh, I shall see your face righteously. So right. I've made that an adverb. Does that help me? Have we solved it? So, so it it uh, helps you in the sense that it I think brings you a little bit closer <laughs> to the meaning of the text. But 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 another you know and and we'll talk a little bit more about this with the Greek. But another issue is you know righteous. You know, is righteous the best translation? Um, you know, sometimes I think a better translation for this word is just. Right. Yeah. So, so w- w- what about if he said, "I will see your face justly"? Now, it's something like this is like again, it's it's a little bit better, um, but it's it's still pretty difficult to understand. There there are things we can do justly. You know, I can. Um, you know, a judge can condemn someone justly. Yeah. Right. Um, and and what we mean by that is his action of condemning is in line with justice. Yeah. And the right? adverb there is modifying the verb. Right. Exactly. It's describing. It's further describing the kind of action. His, yeah. his condemnation is just. Right. Um, but what's interesting about if you just look again in the Hebrew, in in English, this. It, the order is actually flipped in most translations. I shall behold your face in righteousness, where in righteousness is at the end of the sentence. Yeah. But in Hebrew, actually, it's anipetzedek echazefanecha, meaning I, and if we, again, if we translate it justly, I justly will see your face. And once we um, 
have this as a uh, an exegetical or an interpretive possibility, all of a sudden the meaning of the text can be something completely different. You know, we can say something like, justly, I will see your faith. In other words, it is just that I will get to see your faith. Why? I mean, in the context of the Psalms, he is being contrasted with the wicked, right? So he says, you know, that the wicked will will perish, all this stuff. Um, but but um, justly, I shall behold your faith because I have been faithful to you, right? So it's just that I will get this great privilege of seeing your faith, right? And that that makes way better sense of of the text. It makes in English, right? Like that's a very comprehensible sentence for us in English. Whereas I shall behold your faith and your righteousness is very hard for us to understand, and I think it makes much better sense of the Hebrew, both the syntax and the meaning of, of this adverb, um, So in that case, so justly, I will see your face. There, the adverb, rather than my, my sort of half, ha, we're halfway there example, it was, I will see your face justly. And there, in English, we kind of assume that it's, uh, the, that adverb modifies the verb, so I'm seen justly, um, which doesn't make good sense, like you said. But here, the adverb is modifying um, the whole clause. Exactly, exactly. And, and this is a distinction in, in linguistics, in studies on adverbs, that people have called speaker-oriented adverbs versus manner-oriented adverbs. And you can do the same thing with um, other other adverbs, you know, for example, truly, um, you know, it's an easy one. So, the, and the 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 way you can tell is there are certain um, kinds of verbs that truly will go with, and other kinds of verbs that truly won't go with. So, for example, you can say something like, "Truly, the man ran a marathon," which means it's true. But the man ran a marathon. So it's speaker-oriented adverb because the speaker is saying, it's true, the man ran a marathon, right? But to say the man ran a marathon truly is, is a very odd sentence, right? I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. Like, what does it mean for him to run truly? Um, whereas you can say something like, the man answered the question truly which just means that the, the answer he gave was true, right? Or truly the man answered the question, which means that he definitely answered the question. It's true that he answered the question, but we don't know whether it was true or not. So these are really subtle distinctions. You yeah. know, I mean, when, um, and there, there are things that we as English speakers will just intuitively get right away. You know, we don't have to think about, oh, is this speaker-oriented adverb or is this manner-oriented adverb? We just know, you know, we know that an adverb like justly or truly can be used in some context, some verbs, and it can't be used in other contexts and other verbs, and sometimes we put it in the beginning, and sometimes we put it at the end, and we have all of these rules inside of our heads that we are really subconsciously using to to produce language. Um, 
but it's the kind of thing that again the problem is that the translation might screen out those other possibilities yeah right and yeah. and so if you're reading it in hebrew you can say oh okay um you know this is a possible understanding of this of this text justly i will see your face but if if you're reading in English, then you really, really can't get there. You can't get to that same understanding um, because the interpreter, the translator, already did something for you and screened out what what I think is the correct meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a great example, and I think really illustrates. I mean, you're you're using an understanding of of Hebrew and and this and how adverbs are formed. There, there's word order that plays into the way that adverbs would, you know, typically work. And that you also brought in the context, which is, you know, that that's context is going to help you in English or your native translation translation as well. Um, but it also, when you're in the original language, um, helps you. And, and we'll see this also with our Greek example, where the context of, of a paragraph particularly, uh, if not, you know, a larger swath of the text really helps clear up or, or give give some options for what a word means or a phrase means. So let's look then at the, our Greek example. Um, this is from 1 John 4, 17 and 18, which is probably for lots of people a pretty familiar passage. It's, it's um, you know, it talks about God's love in the context and, um, you know, we're going to talk about this idea often translations that will will construe it as perfect love casts out fear is kind of a you know an encouragement or used as an encouragement um but with a little bit more understanding of the context um and the original language provide even a little bit more clarity on what uh what the specific application is uh in the original context so let's maybe talk a little bit about this passage um, so could you just kind of introduce us to uh, the passage as well as uh, what what the particular issue is that we want to address? Yeah, so it, it, it is one of those verses, you know, perfect love cast out fear. Um, just one of those, you know, it's actually just, it's not a verse, it's, it's one clause and, you know, it's a third of a verse, yeah. you know, in verse 18, but it, but it's, it's very easy to put on a coffee mug, <laughs> you know, um, and it's, it's a great one. And, and it's something that, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say isn't true in some sense, um, but I don't think that that's the best understanding of this passage. And so, I, I mean, if you, you look at the larger context, you know, it's, it's talking about really believers love for one another so you know the and and this is so much of first john in general right uh talking about how we treat one another you know in verse 20 for example again right after the another famous verse we love because he first loved us and then 20 says if someone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar um and this, i'm just reading the you know, an English translation, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, and so this whole context, he's, he's talking about how do we treat our fellow believer um, and just people in general? How do, how do we love others? So 
So I think that context is really important for us when we come to this passage and particularly, um, you know, what does this phrase mean? Perfect love casts out fear. Yeah, what is perfect love? I mean, right. So, so I think when you when you translate the phrase as perfect love casts out fear, the the normal way of of understanding it in English, right? At least for for me, is oh, okay. Well, only God's love is perfect, so that means His love cast out fear, right? And I think that's most people's understanding of it. Um, you know, they, they, they think about God's love, how it's, it's just so great and perfect, and, and that's true, right? Um, and I think there is a sense in which, you know, God's love casts out fear. The question is just whether this text means that. Um, and I think so we've got... Look, go ahead. Yeah, Talea Agape. By the way, I, Kevin and I use a different pronunciation for Greek, so I don't know how you would say that, Kevin. But teleia is the word often translated perfect in this context from, from the adjective um, teleos. Right, right. So, and, and the verb is used as well in the previous verse, teleotai. Um, so, so part of the problem is, yeah, the particular English gloss we use for this. So I would just say that perfect is not a good translation here. Um, what I would argue for is something more like realized or manifested. Um, the idea is that, again, if you look at the, the context, um, the idea is that when love is manifested in your life, then you can have confidence that oh, you can have confidence on the day of judgment, right? That it will go well for you because you see God working through you, right? And the love being manifested in your life, so you don't have to fear, right? In judgment, and that and that's the context in verse seventeen, you know. Um, so it says again. I'll I'll read the Greek, um, this phrase in the Greek, and then I'll um, I'll translated you know so it, so it says and tuto so i this is um for for those listening who care about greek pronunciation i use the uh, the polish pronunciation it's like a, a reconstructed early high koine uh, but so it says and tuto teleotai hegape methemon so in this love is manifested is what i would say or has been manifested with us, right? In order that, Tina, right, um, we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world, right? So when we reflect Jesus through our love, then we can have confidence on the day of judgment because, because we're living like Jesus. How are we living like Jesus? We have God's love manifested in our lives. Right, and so then when we come to the next verse, um, again I'll read it in Greek. Phobos uk estin ente agape al etelea agape exo vale ton phobos. So phobos uk estin ente agape. So 
there is no fear in love, but hetelea agape exobale ton phobum. So, but the, the manifested love, right? Manifested love in your life casts out fear, right? Because you know you don't have to be scared because you're walking as Jesus walked through God's Holy Spirit working in you, right? You can have confidence of the day of judgment because you see God's love manifested in your life and and making a real change in who you are, right? And I think that makes much more sense of um, the context and and also of of the meaning of this word, which which can which sometimes means perfect, um, but also sometimes means means mature, realized in the world, right? Which I think is is the context here, and yeah. I think the better understanding. Yeah. Yeah, the telea agape, and so in verse 18, is an adjective modifying love. And as Kevin said, um, in verse 17, you've got, um, you've got a verb, re- a related verb from uh, teleao with, uh, with agape. So the love that's completed or manifested is then referred to as the the manifested love, the completed love in the next verse. So that context, I mean, you can see, you get a little hint in English if the verb is translated perfected in 17 and the adjective is perfect. So you get this hint that, ooh, this might be, you know, a related word. But if you think about the original language, you know, there's, you know, that, that audience is going to connect these words and it, it's it's super clear that um that what he refers to as completed completed love perfected love or what we're suggesting manifested love in verse 18 is related to this completed love of verse 17 and in that context of judgment um is the reason you have confidence like kevin said is because that love is manifested it's it's brought to completion in the sense that, you know, it's present, and so you can have confidence in the Day of Judgment, that all these things that John has emphasized, the author's emphasized, should be true of somebody who really knows God or abides in Him or His love has been uh, completed or manifested, you know, then, then you can have this confidence. And I think that's super helpful because one of the things we tend to assume when we gloss this adjective uh, with perfect. When you think perfect love, often we kind of assume it's this quality of love that is unattainable right. or difficult to attain for a human. Like this is this is a godlike love. Um rather than the main point being, no, this is this is when love is present in your life. Right. It's in that sense that it's completed or manifested. Or, you know, if we want to say perfected, but, you know, we don't usually use that word that way in English. Right, and, and that's, that's really the issue, right, is because we don't use that word that way in English, as, and if I'm reading the Bible in English, I'm, I'm really not going to go to that interpretation, right? So, so that's the problem, is this word has that range of meaning, but we, but perfect doesn't, 
right? So it has that range of meaning. It can describe those kinds of situations in the world. The Greek word does. But, and, but it can also describe, you know, uh, situations that, that, you know, where we, where we would use the word English or the word perfect in English, but because it can describe other kinds of situations where we wouldn't use the word perfect, you know, if you choose that word, it, it can be misleading, right? Um, so that's, that's the issue, again, is you, you, are, you are not allowing, um, as an interpreter, you, you really don't have the option of understanding it in the, in the sense of manifested here. If, if it's translated as perfect, right? Because that's just not what the English word means. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is really helpful. And I, I hope that, you know, our audience can uh, not only benefit from a new possibility for this text, which, which I think is, is well supported by some of the things that we've said, but also just the general point that we're trying to illustrate that knowing the original languages and growing in your knowledge of them is extremely helpful for understanding um, a passage in its original context, um, understanding uh, possible interpretations, and then being able to sort of uh, evaluate the likelihood that a certain interpretation is the best one. Um, and, and so you're not only understanding a passage better, but um, you're able to also maybe rule out an interpretation that is is dependent on with, when it, our translation obscures, you know, a meaning or something like that. So is there anything else you'd want to add, Kevin, in terms of this, this idea of uh, learning the biblical languages or um, the importance of, of learning the original languages of the Bible? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, um, just as a word of encouragement, just, just to stick with it, you know, it's the kind of thing that, like I said it, earlier, it, uh, it can definitely be uh, frustrating at times, boring at times, um, but these are the kinds of distinctions. I mean, if, if you are a serious scholar, I, I think it's, it's, just, it's not really an option. Right, like you, you really have to know the original languages to engage in in the the big, you know, theological discussions. Um, but even if you're a layperson, you know, um, this is a great way to to spend your time. I mean, it's exciting when when you can read the text. I mean, I still get excited all the time when I when I read the text and I come to an understanding that I feel like is is not necessarily new in the sense that no one has understood it that way before but but new to me and that i feel like is more in line with you know the context and just makes more sense um you know it's just it's so much fun to to have the text open up to you in a new way so yeah yeah if you started and you know you're discouraged like that i would just say like um that is a legitimate possibility that, that you'll get to, you know, if you stick with it, um, you know, it'll, it'll pay dividends in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I would second that and, and say that joy of discovery, I've often thought about it in terms of like a joy of discovery. And, and we experience this in life in lots of ways, 
you know, when, anytime you solve a problem, but particularly with language and, and that breakthrough moment of seeing something in a new light or all of a sudden what seemed opaque or hard to understand becomes clear um, is exciting. And, um, you know, millions of people have enjoyed that that feeling, particularly in the biblical languages, and you know it's it's never been easier uh, to wade into that. So, so Kevin, I appreciate your time. Um, we always enjoy talking through uh, texts and 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 thinking about the original languages. Um, if you're out there listening to us, you know, let us know if you've got some questions or comments on on whether it's specific to the passages we discussed or more um, related to the idea of, of learning the biblical languages, uh, do reach out to us and let us know. And if you want to learn more about Bablingo, uh, bablingo.org, uh, where we're offering basically uh, the chance to use a living language approach to learn the biblical languages. Um, and, and so there's, we have a lot of exciting things going on there. So until next time, for Kevin and myself, um, thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Bye.